You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Quest for Sustainable Business, an epic journey in search of corporate responsibility. Kaizen and Kiyosei, driving a better future. Discovering Kaizen. As mentioned in the opening episode of this season, in September 1990 I headed to Japan for ISEC's World Theme Conference on Sustainable Development. This was an opportunity of a lifetime. As a management student at that time, I was all too aware of the rise of the Asian tiger economies, especially Japan. The West was spellbound by the revolution of total quality management, or TQM, which the American statistician Edward Deming had introduced in Japan in the 1970s. The Japanese had perfected TQM through their Kaizen philosophy of continuous improvement or change for the better. In fact, I wrote an undergraduate paper on Japanese management techniques for one of my courses singing the praises of just-in-time production methods and the culture concept of WA or harmony. I had also read about the shadow side of Japan's economic miracle, of how the production line system exploited employees who worked long hours performing meaningless tasks under poor factory conditions. Understandably, therefore, I was breathless with excitement when I arrived in a steamy Tokyo. Humidity was almost 100%. That was August 1990. At the conference itself, we had presentations from people like Hugh Faulkner, who joined with Swiss industrialist Stefan Schmidheine that same year to form the Business Council for Sustainable Development, serving as executive director. The BCSD, in turn, was invited by Maurice Strong, chair of the upcoming 1992 Rio UN Conference on Environment and Development, or the Earth Summit, to provide a business perspective on sustainable development. It was no coincidence, therefore, that one of the key outcomes of our ISEC conference was a publication called A Youth Action Guide on Sustainable Development, presented as our contribution to the Rio Earth Summit. Beyond the conference itself, we also had study tour visits, most notably to the Toyota headquarters in Nagoya, where we met with the senior management team. We were served a sushi-style lunch in square plastic trays, each morsel neatly and aesthetically arranged. Apart from glimpsing their highly automated production line, we had a chance to explore their R&D display area, where they had numerous eco-efficient and alternative fuel technologies already in the mature stages of development. This made the deepest and most lasting impression on me. There was even an engine that was powered by light. Having seen all this in 1990, it was no surprise to me that Toyota led the motor industry with their sustainability reforms nearly 20 years later, launching their Toyota Prius hybrid technology and the RAV4 EV all-electric vehicle in 1997. By September 2010, 2 million Prius cars had been sold and although the RAV EV, which was offered on a lease scheme, was discontinued in 2003, 
Toyota is reportedly working with Tesla Motors to relaunch a second generation. Ever since Toyota's breakthrough, automotive companies have been falling over themselves to catch up and introduce their own hybrid and electric models. This is one of those rare moments where we are seeing a race to the top on environmental performance. Having said that, there is a danger of this being a niche market for so-called ethical consumers. In their report entitled Mobility 2020, the UK government's business task force on sustainable consumption and production noted that transport is the only major sector of the economy which, because of growth, will not contribute to CO2 reductions, while the energy sector is most likely to achieve promising cuts and industry as a whole will make more modest reductions, transport is showing a steady rise. This seems to be a case of lack of will rather than lack of technology. A typical family car, the report says, emits around 200 grams of CO2 per kilometre, a smaller car around 130 grams. Using existing technologies, the industry could reduce these figures to 130 and 80 grams per kilometre. Easy wins for the industry include more efficient tyres or wheels, low friction oils, few extra and smaller fuel tanks. More radical redesign might involve photovoltaic panels to power cooling systems, waste heat recovery, greater use of lightweight materials, and a smart dashboard indicating CO2 emissions in real time. The technology is already available. The report concludes that with a new approach, a 60% cut in car-related carbon emissions could be achieved by 2020. This is an impressive innovation in the industry, but it is linked to individual products and brands, not a system-wide solution. What is needed is vision. Driving a sustainable vision. Vision, I learnt on my trip, is something the Japanese do very well. Shortly after my visit and ahead of most companies in the world, in 1992 Toyota issued its environmental guiding principles and adopted its own Earth Charter. What is interesting is not that they have these principles, after all many companies have flowery statements on their boardroom walls now, but rather the way they are expressed, which I believe conveys a qualitative difference in aspirations. For example, in their guiding principles they commit to honour the language and spirit of the law, and to enhancing the quality of life everywhere, to foster a corporate culture that enhances individual creativity, and to pursue growth in harmony with the global community. And in their Earth Charter, they are already striving to pursue production activities that do not generate waste, and to participate in the creation of a recycling-based society. Note that they do not say activities that reduce waste. They say activities that do not generate waste. Long before Ray Anderson at Interface conceived of his much-celebrated Mission Zero or Bill McDonough and Michael Braungart had popularized cradle-to-cradle practices, Toyota had understood and integrated the concept of a circular economy. Of course, it is not just Toyota that has understood these principles. In 2000, Fuji Xerox became the first company in Japan to achieve zero landfill from collected used products. 
extending its success to the region, Fuji Xerox Eco Manufacturing in Thailand was able to announce that it had effectively accomplished the zero landfill goal by recycling 99.8% of used products and consumables. This is not just a business phenomenon, the philosophy pervades the whole of Japanese society. For example, the town of Kamikatsu wants to eliminate all waste by 2020 and has already achieved an 80% recycling rate. With this kind of national psyche, it is no surprise that Japan led the adoption of the ISO 14001 Environmental Management System Standard, which was launched in 1996. After all, it was based on the ISO 9000 Quality Standard, for which the Japanese were already the world's leading experts and practitioners. Sustainability Accounting Pioneers Another area that Japan has led is in the field of sustainability reporting in general and environmental auditing and accounting in particular. As far back as 1993, the Japanese Institute of Certified Public Accountants set up an environmental auditing subcommittee. This was followed by an environmental auditing technical committee in 1998, an environmental accounting technical committee in 1999, and a greenhouse gas emission trading technical committee in 2002. Later, in 2005, the old environmental auditing technical committee was reorganized as two technical committees, the CSR Information Technical Committee and the CSR Assurance Technical Committee. As a result, there are now four technical committees. The Japanese government has been a major factor in promoting environmental auditing, accounting and reporting. In 2000, the Environmental Agency, now the Ministry of Environment, published an environmental accounting guideline. It also published environmental reporting guidelines in 2001. In 2004, the Ministry of Environment established the law concerning the promotion of business activities with environmental consideration by specified corporations, by facilitating access to environmental information and other measures. In terms of this law, companies must publish an environmental report every year and must enhance the reliability of the report by having it verified. Of course, sustainability reporting has now become commonplace following the introduction of the Global Reporting Initiative's Sustainability Reporting Guidelines in 1999 and their revisions in 2002, 2006 and later. And indeed, Japan continues to be among the leading reporters in the world. However, it is on the phenomenon of environmental accounting that I believe we can learn the most from Japan. As it happens, when I started KPMG's environmental unit in 1997, my second project was to develop an environmental accounting procedure for a national chemical company. At the time, the leading authority on the subject was the English accounting academic Rob Gray, founder director of the Centre for Social and Environmental Accounting Research and editor of the Social and Environmental Accounting Journal from 1991 to 2007. His books included Accounting for the Environment and, more recently, Social and Environmental Accounting. 
From his research, I learned that the pioneers in social and environmental accounting were companies like Baxter International, British Telecom and Ontario Hydro. I fully expected that this was the next big wave. And yet, disappointingly, environmental and social accounting faded into the background as sustainability reporting, led by the efforts of the GRI, accountability and others, took centre stage. There is good reason for this. Quantifying physical, social and environmental impacts is a natural prerequisite to translating these impacts into financial impacts. And as I discovered in my KPMG project, estimating the financial costs and revenues associated with environmental, let alone social externalities, can be challenging. As far as I'm aware, Japan is the only country that is stuck consistently to the vital task of developing and promoting environmental accounting. In 2005, the Japanese government issued an updated version of their environmental accounting guidelines, which includes detailed data table templates and advice on how to quantify environmental costs and benefits. Kiyosei at Canon Another lesson I believe Japan can teach the rest of the world is how to develop and nurture a philosophy of care, respect and honour. Fujio Mitare, President and CEO of Canon, wrote in the ICCA Handbook of Corporate Social Responsibility that, to be honest, I was somehow puzzled when I first encountered the term CSR. In Japan, whenever something is introduced as an acronym of a concept expressed in English, we tend to view it as an entirely new and novel idea. The moment we translate the term into Japanese, however, we soon realize that more often than not, it is a concept that we have long been familiar with. This too is the case with the term corporate social responsibility. Canon's first president, Takeshi Mitare, introduced three guiding principles during the 1940s, which are not a million miles away from today's concept of sustainable business. They were health first, which stresses the importance of healthy and happy employees, familism, to nurture a spirit of harmony between workers based on trust and understanding, and meritocracy, to ensure that employees are evaluated fairly for the abilities and skills they bring to the job. Then in 1988, Canon expanded these concepts beyond the boundaries of the company and expressed their philosophy as the achievement of corporate growth and development with the aim of contributing to global prosperity and the well-being of humankind. This is the idea behind Canon's corporate philosophy of Kiyosei. More succinctly, at Canon, they define Kiyosei as living and working together for the common good, which is as good a definition of sustainable business as you'll ever find. As reported in the chapter on Japan in my book, The World Guide to CSR, this is the same sort of philosophy that resulted in Tokugawa sustainable forest management practices that started around 1700 in response to deforestation and continued to evolve in the next 150 years. Another example is the Sanpo Yoshi business philosophy, 
practiced by merchants in the Edo period from 1600 to 1860s, which literally means three-way good, the notion that business should benefit the company, the customer, and society. Some of these Japanese concepts, like locality, even made their way into our English sustainable business lexicon. The term glocal, a portmanteau of global and local, is said to come from a Japanese word which simply means global localization, originally referring to a way of adapting farming techniques to local conditions It evolved into a marketing strategy when Japanese businessmen adopted it in the 1980s. It is said that the English word glocal was first coined by Akio Morita, founder of Sony Corporation. In fact, in 2008, Sony Music Corporation even trademarked the phrase go glocal. Of course, All of this does not mean that Japan is devoid of irresponsible business practices. For example, there were pollution-induced illnesses in the 1950s caused by the release of methylmercury by a chemical factory in Minamata City. There have also been the corporate governance banking scandals of the past two decades and the catastrophe at the Fukushima nuclear plant that resulted from the Japanese earthquake and tsunami of March 2011. However, I believe that culture, values and philosophy are more enduring drivers of long-term success than short-term greed and negligence, and that Japan will rise again as one of the leaders of our post-industrial low-carbon economy. Almost every week, we see new sustainable innovations coming out of Japan. And it is no coincidence. The Japanese government is strategically investing in clean technology the same way that they invested in the motor industry in the 1970s and the microelectronics industry in the 1980s. To give just one example, Mitsubishi Chemical announced their launch of a new product which is a combination of thin-film solar cells and aluminium plastic composite panels. The new building material enables effective photovoltaic generation on vertical walls. We can expect to see many more of these kind of social and environmental innovations coming out of Japan in the next decades, especially now that they have such strong competition from South Korea and China. After my visit... So many decades ago, it is clear that another visit to Japan is long overdue.